Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, you are worthy. Jesus, you are worthy. It is our absolute honor and joy to lift high the name of Jesus. And Lord, we just confess to you right now, had you not saved us, have you not, had you not given us your Holy Spirit, we would not be worshiping you right now. We would be worshiping ourselves or some other false god, but you have redeemed us and plucked us out and given us faith and eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. And Lord, it is our absolute joy to be adopted as your kids, to be in your family, to be redeemed, to be restored, to be given hope, eternity. You've given us everything. It is our absolute joy and privilege just to be here now. And Lord, as we open up your word, uh, our, our, our desire is to be formed more and more into the image of Jesus. So would you do what only you can do? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine with me a professional athlete is a committed member of your church. He's been struggling with alcohol, but is unrepentant and resisting pleas to repent. The elders follow due process and put him under church discipline. A media outlet gets wind of this and offers to pay you for the information. What do you do? Imagine your pastor steals $10,000 from the church. You discover the theft and lovingly confront the pastor. He resists you and you bring it to the elders. They respond by saying the church can't afford another scandal and sweep it under the rug. What do you do? Who do you tell? Imagine you work for a Christian nonprofit organization. Your supervisor asks you to do things that are illegal and immoral. You immediately inform HR. They respond by telling you, we are not in a position to replace your boss. You have two options. Number one, be quiet and let it go. Or option number two, speak out and lose your job. What do you do? And who do you tell? This morning, I want to answer one simple question that um, for many of you in this room has been asked to me personally. I know over the decades and decades and decades that many of you have been in church, this has been a question that you have wrestled through and struggled with. And what I want to attempt to do this morning is to give you a biblical framework to encourage you and to help you think as biblically as we possibly can. Now, before I get to the question, there are going to be multiple questions that come up in your mind throughout this sermon. So at the end, I have a whole slew of questions I want to answer to try to help you think and feel and respond as biblically as we possibly can. Here's the question I want to answer this morning. To whom does the Bible give authority to publicly expose sin within the church? To whom does the Bible give authority to publicly expose sin 
within the church. So if you're new, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church. We're in a sermon series on Genesis 1 through 11. Open up your Bibles with me, Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. Um, We're at the tail end of the life of Noah. And uh, before we really get into the meat of this, what I I have to do is bring vocabulary clarity, clarity, I can't even say the word, um, to all of us in this room. Because really you walking away with the oomph and the real meat of this message is going to be contingent on two things. Number one, you have to pay attention, okay? Number two, we all have to agree what certain words mean so that as I go throughout the sermon, you understand what I mean when I say them. And so here's the first word or concept that we need to define. What does it mean to hide sin? Now, we'll agree on the front end that this is bad, to conceal that which must be exposed. Can we agree that this is bad? You can give me a nod or a yes or an amen or something. This is bad. We do not want to hide sin. The second phrase I want to agree upon is what it means to expose sin. By and large, throughout this message, this is how I'm going to use this phrase. It is to reveal that which must be concealed. This is not good. By and large, when I use the word expose, we're not using this in a positive light in this message. It is to reveal that which must be concealed. Now, here's the third phrase, which I need you to pay very close attention to, because you have uh, uh, phrases in our vocabulary that will lead you to a different conclusion. It is to cover sin. Now, I want you to notice I did not say to cover up sin, did I? Uh, Is covering up sin good? Everybody say no with me. That is not good. We're talking about the biblical principle of to cover sin. And what that means is to protect someone from unnecessary shame. Uh, To cover sin, which is what the Bible is going to advocate every one of us who are believers in Jesus to do, is to protect someone from unnecessary shame. Uh, So here's what that means. Um, If you have a friend and they're caught in um, sexual sin, To cover their sin is not to sweep it under the rug. To cover their sin is not to hide it. But to cover their sin means you make sure only the people who need to know, know. So sometimes when you're covering someone's sin, that might mean they have to confess or apologize to one or multiple people, right? Um, To cover someone's sin means to not heap an unnecessary amount of shame on them while they're in the process of repenting. A question should be going through your brain. What if they don't repent? What if they're a leader in the church? We're gonna get to all of that. So in your sermon notes, the title of the sermon is How Do I Handle My Brother's Sin? And here's the first point, do I expose it? So in in Genesis chapter nine, uh, we have a catalytic event and in Noah, the most righteous man literally in the entire world um, is gonna sin. He's gonna sin big and he's gonna get caught in this sin. In Genesis chapter nine, verse 20, here's what we find. Noah began to be a man of the soil. We are post-flood, so the whole world has been blotted out. Uh, This is uh, a post-flood world. It's Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, and the animals they had on the ark and those that reproduced in the ark. He, Noah, drank of the wine. So far, we're morally neutral. And became drunk. Now we got the sin. And not only this, but he lay uncovered in his tent. Uh, I want to do, I want to answer three questions. Number one, why? Number two, what's at stake? And number three, what should you do if you found him? Uh, Number one, why why is Noah drunk? And the quick answer is the Bible doesn't tell us, but a discerning reader can understand this comes right on the heels 
of God blotting out all of humanity and every living thing in the world except for the ark. I think the discerning reader is going to realize that Noah's probably dealing, right? Mass loss, mass death, the loss of everything that's important to him, unanswered questions. I mean, probably most of us could look at him and say, um, we're probably not personally, emotionally, spiritually prepared to witness what Noah went through. Um, I think I would find most 21st century American Christians would be unusually sympathetic to Noah. But is it sin? You can say yes. I would hope we get a little more conviction on this one. Is it sin? It's absolutely sin. Uh, The most righteous man in the world, even him, he is prone to fall into sin. Now, what is at stake in this moment? What is at stake? Noah's honor. I want to just give you an example. I want you to imagine you're the spiritual head of your household. I want you to imagine that you are a spiritual leader. You are a preacher of righteousness. Um, Everywhere people go, uh, everywhere you go, they know you as a man or a woman of God, whatever. And so um, I want you to imagine, though, uh, that you're at a family event and you get drunk as a skunk out of your mind and you take all your clothes off and you pass out naked. Would that be a dishonorable and shameful moment for you? Would it be unforgettable and embarrassing? And the answer is absolutely, absolutely. Now, what is the last thing that you want your family to do for you in that moment? Call up everybody, go get the neighbors and say, hey, come check out Pastor Michael. He's drunk as a skunk and naked on the ground, right? No, you don't want them to do that. You want them to cover you in that moment, do you not? Do you not? You haven't even had the chance to repent. You haven't even had the chance to make it right. And you want to know that the people who love you most are going to help cover this. What's at stake in this is Noah's honor. Now, for many of us in this room, this isn't that big of a deal. But I want to tell you, a man's, one of a man's most prized possessions is his honor, his name, his reputation. This is of utmost value. And in this culture, to dishonor a man is one of the most evil things that you can do. It is despicable and it is despised. In America, we find ourselves prone to dishonor people because it's culturally accepted. And I would contend that every man has this deep and profound need by God, put inside of his soul to be honored, not to cover up his sin unnecessarily, not to hide his sin, not to sweep it under the rug, but truly to be honored. And men who are honored end up thriving. Uh, Noah is about to be dishonored, not just by simply his own sin, but by his son. What would you do if you found him? What would you do? What should you do? Would you go get your brothers and say, check this out? Would you point at your dad and laugh at him? Would you mock him? Would you make fun of him? Would you call the neighbors? Look what happens in verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. So so culturally, uh, in this scenario, Noah's sin and nakedness are an utter shame. And the text is going to go out of its way to make sure that you understand that what Ham did was not, hey brothers, can you come over here and help me? The text is going to make sure that you know that what Ham did was evil, it was exposing, it was unnecessary, it was shameful, it was degradating to Noah and his character and his honor and his reputation. It was private. And to see your father naked is actually in this culture one of the most shameful things that you could possibly do. On every level, Noah made a mistake. But what Ham was going to do is take this one mistake and mock him for it. I mean, you imagine, uh, we see it here clearly, Ham did not love God like Noah did. And you wonder, if you, if you have a, a mom or dad who really loves the Lord and a son or daughter who's really struggling with the Lord, um, that can actually be one of the most tense relationships. And you can have a young man or young woman who hates their father because of their faith, hates their mother because of their faith and their love for God because they have what that kid so wishes that they had. 
Uh, I want to give you a, a little glimpse into what might motivate somebody to expose. There are four big things that came up here. Uh, number one would be vengeance. Again, maybe he hated his father. And it's like that non-Christian who lives next to the really good Christian neighbor and all of a sudden the neighbor makes a mistake and they're like, gotcha, gotcha, right? You know that? There's this spirit of the world that is waiting to catch you who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Got you. Maybe that's the spirit of what's going on. Maybe it's just vengeance. Maybe it's self-promotion. You use another person's struggle to make yourself look better in front of other people. You've never done that one, have you, by the way? No one's ever done that before. You've never talked about how bad someone else is to make yourself feel better or look better in front of other people? Am I the only one? Okay, good, I'm evil, got it. Um, puffing up, um, you talk about someone else's struggle not just to make yourself look better, but sometimes just to be cathartic and make yourself feel better. Like you know the, you know the weight of your own sin and sometimes it really feels good to find people who are worse than you and then point them out so that you're like, well, at least I'm not them, right? Anyone else? Again, I'm the worst person in the world, got it, good. Here's the one um, that I think is actually the most sinister. When you do this out of sheer joy, uh, let, me, let me just poke for a minute. Um, do you love being the first one to break a news story? Do you love being the one who says, did you hear? Oh, you didn't hear? Let, let me tell you. There's something sinister, just on a scale of one to 10, it's like one or two, but it's there, right? It's just that, ah, oh, I want to break the news, ah, oh, you know? And sometimes we just, out of sheer joy, our base instincts delight in exposing the sins of another person. I wanna be clear that we break all this down. What Ham did was a knowledgeable, intentional attack on his father's honor. That's what this was. Nothing less. A knowledgeable, intentional attack on his father's honor. So I wanna ask you a question. Do people see you, do Christians see you as a tabloid or a diary? Are you known as a sin publisher or as a reputation protector? Tabloids are a lot of fun to read, right? You want to get all the dirt on somebody? They did what? No way. But diaries make people trust you. If you function like a protective cover, people can come to you with their deepest, darkest secrets, especially in a spirit of repentance, and they know that you will not unnecessarily expose them or hide what they've done. Uh, Christians, we need to be, I think, the safest people in the world for people to bring their struggles and their sins to. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, if you've been at Village Church long enough. I, I cannot tell you how many times somebody has come up to me and they've told me a horror story about their view of Christians and what happened to them in church. Um, I got pregnant at the age of 16. The elders called me in, publicly brought me in front of the church and kicked me out and I was never allowed to go back. I was struggling with porn addiction. The elders kicked me out of the church. Everybody started talking about my struggles. I could go on and on and on. And I thought to myself, are you serious? Like people actually, like elders, pastors actually do this stuff? They out you publicly? Uh, before you've even had a chance to repent or in a spirit of brokenness, like they're out getting in front of the people and outing you, like that's insanity. Now here's what's interesting is that when I talk to non-Christians about their views of church, more times than I could ever tell you their view is that they're gonna come in here and we're going to find their sin, publicize it, exploit it, right? They may not even be Christians and they're walking here and they are afraid that if somebody hears about their life, we're just gonna jibber jabber and chat chat all about it and spread the news, that is a pathetic reputation. The church actually needs to be a place where sinners who are broken can actually come and be covered, not covered up. We don't hide their sin, 
but we don't unnecessarily heap shame upon shame upon shame, especially, especially those who are in the process of repenting. Point number two in your notes, how do I handle my brother's sin? We cover it. What are Shem and Japheth, Ham's brothers, going to do with this? Are they going to point? Are they going to laugh? Are they going to exploit their father? Uh, they, they actually do something that is over the top, overcompensating, awesome. They protect Noah in a powerful way. Now, I want you to hear me. They are not covering up his sin. They are not hiding his sin. They are protecting their father's honor and not letting their father be defined for the rest of his life by one sin, one struggle, or one decision. And by the way, isn't that what you want? Anyone? Yeah. We, we have not even begun to see the stupidity of Christians, right? We are capable of so many dumb things. You think your dumbest moments are behind you? I pray they are. But in case they're not, you want to know that when you walk into here, we're not ready to just chop and expose, right? I don't know future Michael. I've never met him. I don't know what he's capable of. I don't know future you, but I do know this. I want to be in a place that especially when I'm caught and repentant will cover me, not hide it, but will not unnecessarily expose it. They will make me say sorry to the people I need to say sorry to. Oftentimes, the higher level of responsibility and authority you have, the more public your apologies need to be, yes. But that's very different than unnecessarily exposing. Here's what happens in verse 23, chapter nine. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment. They heard what happened. Uh, I have a hunch. They just looked at Ham and said, get out of here. You're disgusting. I can't even believe you would do this to our father. I can't believe that you're inviting us in to gawk on our father's shame and dishonor. You're going to let one moment define him. He's going to wake up and know what you've done to him. Are you kidding me? They laid the garment. They laid it on both their shoulders. I love this. And they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. And, and the, the author just wants you to know this with clarity. They did not see their father's nakedness. Again, culturally, this is hard for us to understand. But to see your father's nakedness was of the utmost shame to him in this time. They covered him. They didn't cover it up. They didn't hide it. The whole family knew about it, I'm sure. You don't get drunk and get naked without other people knowing about it, right? Like, people are going to hear about this. But he hasn't even had a time, an opportunity. He hasn't even sobered up enough to say, I was wrong, and having a time to apologize and to repent. So what's the difference between their reactions? Uh, Ham reveled in exposing his father's sin. And the other brothers were grieved over the sin. I think our reaction to people's sin honestly reveals a lot more about us than it does them. Very few things surprise me anymore. We are all capable of great stupidity. But what most often surprises me is how people respond to other people's sin. When you're in those moments, these, these are sacred moments when somebody is caught and especially repentant to see what comes out of you. Because by the way, you have been caught. Every single time you do it, you don't know this, but you're caught. Jesus knows. He sees it. And his mercy and his grace and his covering over you are unbelievably kind and generous. All right, so let's, let's just go back over this. I want to answer the question, what does it mean to cover it up? What does it not mean? Because I, I want to make sure that we are all 100% on the same page so you don't leave here and say, Pastor Michael said you should cover up people's sins. Is that what I'm saying? 
No, thank you. All right, number one. Uh, we cover mess-ups and repentant sin, not unrepentant sin. Okay? The Bible actually gives due process for what happens when somebody is an unrepentant sin. Let's, let's just refresh ourselves. It's from Matthew chapter 18. If you have a brother in sin, you go to that person and you confront them kindly, lovingly, generously with the benefit of the doubt, but directly. And if they don't repent, if they don't turn, you are authorized by scripture to bring another person into that conversation. So you bring that person to the conversation. Scripture's giving you permission to do this and you confront the sin. If they don't repent, you are authorized by scripture before God to take another step. You are authorized to go to the elders of the church. Uh, this is absolutely permissible. They may not like it. Of course they don't like it. Who wants to be exposed when you're trying to hide something, right? Uh, but you're authorized actually to expose this to the elders. And at that point, the scripture gives you no further authorization. It is in the hands of the elders. And I know what you're asking. What if the elders aren't functioning well? We're gonna get there. But at this point, it is in the hands of the elders. And if the elders confront this person and they won't repent, the elders are authorized to expose, to publicize this person's sin. Here's the prepositional phrase, within. Within the boundaries of the church. Now, one of the things that I need you to catch here, we're gonna see this unfold, but there is such a high value in the New Testament that the non-Christian world not know about all the stupidity that happens in here. All of our arguments, all of our fights, all of our disunity, there's such a high value because the non-Christian world, A, wants to pull a ham and point the finger at you and say, see, they're hypocrites. See, and many of you who work with non-Christians on a regular basis, you know this spirit. There is a spirit of, see, got you. I knew it. You're all hypocrites. It's there. The Bible doesn't want the world to know this because it's none of their business. And the Bible doesn't want to create unnecessary stumbling blocks for people to come to Christ. And what we're not saying is hide the sin. No, we deal with sin directly, explicitly, we go after it. But we are saying is sometimes family issues are not everyone's issues. And you know this intuitively because when you have a family struggle, do you go tell everybody in the whole world as if you're obligated? No, because there are some things that are family issues, and this is how the church, or how the Bible, sees the church. We're not first a movement. We are not first an organization. We are a family, and that is who we are. And some things stay inside the family, and that is okay. Now, you may be asking, what do you do if it gets outside of the family? We're going to deal with that in a little bit. Covering believes, number two, you, your mistake is not who you are that this one mistake or struggle or habit or pattern is not the defining reality of your life. When people tell your story, may it not be this struggle. May it not be this sin. When, when somebody comes to me and says, tell me about so-and-so, tell me about Jimmy Bob and Susie Q, may the one thing I say about them not be their sin or their struggle. And what covering believes to the core is that Jesus wants to deal with sin decisively, uh, deliberately, um, but we are not defined by this. In fact, what we want is to put the sin behind us and to, to grow into the calling of Christ-likeness. That's what we want. Number three, covering demands apologies when others are sinned against. To cover someone means to look at them and say, here are the following people I expect that you are going to go sit down with and have a personal conversation with and repent. Covering up would be to require no apologies whatsoever. But we are not in the business of covering up, are we? We're in the business of covering, which is a very different principle. Number four, in case you haven't caught this yet, it does not mean cover up. <laughs> are we clear yet on this one? 
Am I advocating that we cover up people's sins and sweep it under the rug? The answer is no, not, not at all. Verse 24, let's see what happens. When Noah awoke from his wine, I love the way the Bible articulates that, and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And if, you, if, you're, if you're a thinking reader, you should be asking, how did he know? Well, if you wake up one day, buck naked with a sheet over you, you're probably gonna wonder, how did this happen? How did this sheet get on me? And we don't know. Maybe the brothers were waiting for him, tending to him in his drunken stupor. I don't know. Uh, maybe they told him, but that's authorized. They can do that. They can tell Noah what their youngest son did. He's the authority. That's actually very permissible in this context. Maybe Ham, we don't actually have any sense of this, but maybe, maybe Ham told him. Maybe he woke up and Ham pointed the finger at him and said, got you, you hypocrite. We don't know what it is. But here's what I do want to say. Uh, the New Testament is actually super helpful and helping us understand this event and applying it. So here's what I wanna ask you to do. We're gonna do a little twist here. Will you go uh, with me in the book of 1 Peter? I'll put it on the screen in case you don't have a Bible, but 1 Peter chapter three. And uh, it's very interesting. 1 Peter is a letter written by Peter to Christians uh, in the first century. And I think if Peter had a favorite Old Testament character, it was gonna be Noah. And here's what Peter assumes, assumes throughout 1 Peter and 2 Peter. What he assumes is that the days of the first century, the days that Peter lived in were so evil, they were beginning to mirror the, day, the pre-flood days of Noah, wickedness and debauchery and all this disgusting stuff. And as Peter's looking at the course of this world, he's watching the world get more evil and more evil and more disgusting. And in his mind, there is a coming judgment, the second coming of Christ, and it's gonna be soon, just like there was evil and then there was, there was impending judgment with the flood. Now there's evil again, just like that, and there's gonna be an impending judgment with the second coming of Christ. And what Peter wants to make a case here is that you all are Noah's. Okay? You all are Noah's in a perverse generation, heralds of righteousness, and Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. And I want to show you how Peter applies this covering issue to the church. So we'll start in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. And what I want you to know is chapter 3, verse 20 through chapter 4, in Peter's mind is Noah. Noah is the backdrop, the story of Noah, the culture of Noah's day. It's all behind the scenes. I want to show you this. God's patience, verse 20, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We go to chapter four, verse three. Uh, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. He's actually throwing you back to the days of Noah. Noah is in his mind. And here's what he says with respect to this. They're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Do you see the language that's happening here? And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God was ready to judge with a flood. Now he's going to be ready to judge with the second coming. And we get to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Here's what he says. The end of all things is at hand. This, this is sort of like the last day before the flood is going to come, before the rains fall. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Interesting. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Above all. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that interesting? In the backdrop of Peter's mind is the Noah story. And he says, don't get drunk. This is not the time for that. Now is the time for sober-mindedness. And what happens when your brothers do struggle? 
What happens when your sisters do struggle? We are not tabloids, we are diaries. We cover, we protect. And if it is unrepentant, we follow the laws, the rules given by Matthew 18 to pursue that and to confront that and to demand. And we expose up and to the point until we tell the elders. And then our responsibility and authority ends at that moment. We are not allowed to expose beyond the elders. It is their job, balls in their court. Proverbs 10, 12 also picks this up. Hatred stirs up strife, but what does love do? Love covers all offenses. Isn't that interesting? Don't you want to be in a church that when you're at your most stupid, covers you? Doesn't cover up, but covers you, loves you, is a diary for you, demands that you apologize where necessary, believes that you are not defined by one sin or struggle or act of stupidity, fights for you. Like, isn't that where you want to be? I'm telling you, the more stories I hear of people from churches, this is apparently not a common thing, which is probably why the New Testament has to write this, because we need to be reminded and instructed, Village Church, we must be a diary, not a tabloid. We must fight to cover our brothers and sisters and not expose their sins beyond this unnecessarily. So what? I'm gonna give you a couple so what's, and then I have a litany of questions that if I were you, I would wanna ask me right now. Okay, so what, number one, the scriptures expect us to keep believers' sin within the community of believers. Why? Not to hide it, not to act like someone we're not, but because it's none of their business. If you and your husband or your wife have a fight, it's no one else's business, right? Do you want everybody knowing all of your family stuff all the time? No, this is a family. And so there's some things that stay between you guys, and that is okay. Number two, ideally, I keep one's sin within the smallest circle of Christians possible. My goal is not to tell everybody, when you mess up, do you want me freely speaking of your mistake? Please say no, because if you say yes, that's weird. I just think you're strange. The answer is no. We know this. The goal, again, is not to cover up. The goal is not to hide. And there are going to be people who need to know. This is true. They're going to need to know. And you got to be prepared to let them know. If you're going to be dumb, you need to be prepared to make right the people you have harmed, right? Number three, within the church, the believer is commanded, commanded to identify sin, responsible to confront sin, and accountable to follow Matthew 18. If you come to me as an elder and you try to out somebody without talking to them and following this process, this has happened multiple times, I will put you back to them and say, here is what your job is. I cannot obey God for you. You have to take responsibility to the commands of scripture and the processes that scripture lays out for the protection of not just you, but them. And hear me, who, who when you make a mistake, do you want an elder coming to your house? Right? Wouldn't you rather have your friend who says they love you or your family member who says they love you talk to you first and warn you of the process? Wouldn't you love for them to give you the respect to bring another person in to lovingly talk to you and confront you before you go tell the pastors of the church, right? I think this is a part of the honor we give each other to cover each other. Number four, within the church, the elders are authorized to expose sins within the church. a few years ago, we had an instance. Um, somebody was in unrepentant sin in our church. I did not get up on a Sunday morning and tell the whole church. We actually had a congregational meeting for members only. In fact, if you weren't a member, we didn't permit you to even be in the room or to hear about it. 
We had our members together, and as elders, we exposed the sin within the confines of the membership of our church because the Bible has authorized to do that if there is persistent, unrepentant sin. Um, We also went through and trained our church in terms of this is what it means when somebody is under church discipline. That's the language we would use or the scriptures would use too. If they're under some kind of discipline process, we talked about what does it mean when you see them? What does it mean if they come to the doors? We trained you in all that and processed all that together. And it stinks and it's terrible. But as an elder, I'm given authority and permission by God, if not commanded, to tell the members of the church, but not beyond. It's no one else's business. It's no one else's business. The tabloids don't need to know. What happens in the family, to a degree, should stay in the family. Now, again, if I'm you, I got questions galore. Like, I'm like, what about this fueling? Come on, let's go. We're going to get to them. So I put a whole bunch of questions. Um, I'm going to take the most amount of time in the first question, and then I'm going to zip through them all. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to answer all your questions because so many of you have such unique, personal, painful, heartbreaking stories. There's no way for me to address the principles that that really undergird how you should respond um, in these times. Here's what I would say. Uh, My job is to serve you, to help you, maybe to give you some biblical categories and boundaries. And there are some circumstances that are just stinking hard and you're gonna need um, some really good counselors, some people who understand God's word really well to come alongside of you and help you navigate some of those more tumultuous waters, okay? But for now, let's let's go after um, a whole bunch of these questions and um, we'll see what happens. Number one, but what if the elders... Hide the pastor or leader's sin. What if, what if they're sinning? So I want to share with you a passage of scripture that has been profoundly personal to me um, and instructional. And it's from Revelation chapter 2. Uh, there are seven letters written to seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, these are letters from Jesus to each of these churches. Very personal. Um, the church in Ephesus is the first one, starts off in Revelation 2.1, and uh, the messages are addressed to, uh, the letters are addressed to the messengers. Some of your versions translate it angels, because that word can be translated that way. Some of your Bible versions will translate it as messenger. Um, probably the most simple, easy way to understand this is that the, the messenger, the person the letter is given to is the pastor. Um, it doesn't make sense that there's some kind of angel that Jesus would write a letter to inside of the church. That's, that's language I don't know that fits anywhere else in scripture. Um, but it is clear that when letters are given in scripture, they're given to the elders, they're given to the pastors. Uh, and so here's what we find that these letters are given to the pastors, the messengers of the church in Ephesus. And here's what Jesus says. The words of him, who's Jesus, who holds the seven stars. Revelation chapter one actually tells us that the stars are the pastors or the messengers. And here's what Jesus is saying. I hold the elders and the pastors in my hand. I've got this. I've got this thing under control. When when these guys are fools, I have never stopped being in control for a second. Now, you might be saying, but but Jesus, um, you're ineffective. Your time frame isn't my time frame. (laughs) Just don't say that to him. Um, But he's got this. And and what Jesus wants to know, and he wants all these pastors and the entire church to understand, because there are going to be some major threats that Jesus makes to these churches, particularly the church in Ephesus. And what, what Jesus wants, not just the pastor, but everyone in the church to know, is that whatever's going on in Ephesus, he knows about it. He knows about it personally. And this has not gone past him. 
And he loves the bride, the church, more than any human being in that church could plausibly love the church. This is personal for him. And, and if you're in this church, you, sh- you should be greatly encouraged that no matter how dumb future Michael and future elders could plausibly be, Jesus is always in control. Jesus is always aware and he is personally attentive to what's going on. That being said, he says this, he holds the seven stars, the pastors in his right hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands, which, which Revelation chapter one tells us those are the churches. Uh, the way I like to think of it is Jesus is walking in and out of our pews through each one. He knows what's going on. He's in our elder meetings, our staff meetings, our director meetings. He's in our corporate worship. He knows. It's not just personal from a distance. It's personal with presence. Jesus personally knows what's happening here. Jesus personally knows what's happening in that church or that organization. Jesus knows. He knows personally and he loves, he loves the bride of Christ. And sometimes Jesus makes threats. Sometimes he comes into a church and he says, look, if you don't get this right, I will shut the church down. And that's what he promises to do in Ephesus. If you don't come back to your first love, if you don't get this stuff right, I'm going to shut the place down. And I'm going to take away your lampstand. And maybe, maybe, there's a plausibility in this scenario, by the way, that the church might still exist, but Jesus is not walking amongst them, which is so catastrophic to even consider that that could be an option. Now, I, I might sit up here and try to proclaim the word of God and Jesus is like, yeah, I'm, I'm not even interested. But I, I come back to this regularly because I am instructed and encouraged um, that Jesus Christ has, he has the elders, he has the pastors and it's personal for him. And I've struggled. There's a lot of moments in my life over the last you know, 20 years of being in ministry where I've wanted to call some pastors from different churches up and like be Jesus for a moment, you know, maybe be the Holy Spirit. Anyone else want to do that? Execute some holy vindictive justice, right? Anyone else ever feel that way, right? And uh, one, of, one of the things that Jesus has been very clear to me is sometimes, you know, brother to brother, pastor to pastor, we have hard conversations, but at the end of the day, um, he's in control. Now, if I'm you, I, I'm going to take issue with what I just said. And the second question maybe will help you understand why. Michael, are you saying that if the elders hide your sin, that no one can hold them accountable? It's just Jesus' job to do it? Michael, isn't that kind of convenient for you? Uh, if you're not thinking about that, by the way, you should be, okay? Uh, and, and I'll just, I'll, can I just tell you what we do here so you can at least know what's happening at Village Church? Um, if you're new with us, just take this as a, a moment to like hear what's going on in the family. Um, we are inches away, like days, from emailing to you, maybe weeks, uh, emailing to you a brand new constitution, which we've been working really hard on because we want to protect Village Church, not just from outside uh, forces, but from future Michael, but from future elders. I, I don't have any doubt that Michael today in an elder meeting is not going to do something incredibly stupid, but I don't know Michael a year from now. I don't know Kirk for Hasselt a year from now. I don't know John Shales a year from now. I don't know John Naraki a year from now. I, don't, I know these guys now. I don't know them 10 years from now, right? Who knows? Maybe my son is going to be an elder at this church. Maybe your son, who's like four years old or three years old, could be a future elder at this church. I have no, I have no idea. I don't know what they're capable of. I don't know the future, but here's what I do know. I want to protect our church from those people also. So here, here's the interesting thing. If you find sin uh, in the elders, or the elders are covering up someone's sin or my sin, um, our new constitution, which I, I'm very excited about because it provides a really great provision that it actually has organizations set aside in there that you can call for arbitration and mediation and accountability. And those organizations are actually given authority to address and to deal with those kind of issues. 
so that you as a member actually don't have to just sit there and be like, oh, I just, I just got to leave and walk away. There's nothing to do. What we want to do is make sure that even we have outside forces that can either enact arbitration or mediation to help us so that we don't get to that point. I want to stop future Michael from that point. I don't want to just create a constitution that protects us and gives us all authority. If we happen to be stupid, then, then no, there's nothing you can do but leave, right? And so that's part of one of the desires is to understand that we really do want to serve you. And so at Village Church, if we get to that point, um, you actually have means and mechanisms to not let that be the final word. And we as elders are giving you on the front end that permission. So one of the things I, I tell our staff and uh, I, I say to them, if you catch me sinning or if you find me being uniquely oppressive, you have my full permission now to out me. You have my f- full permission now to go around me and to tell the elders. And in that moment, I might get mad, but right now in my good state of mind, I'm giving you permission, okay? And so you have my full permission to bypass me and just go right to them, right? I'm giving them that permission. Why? Because I don't know what future Michael's gonna do in that moment. I don't know what you, future you is gonna do in that moment. And so what we have to do is we have to figure out maybe how to protect some of these potential futures. Number three, what if I'm in a church And the elders are getting away with sinful stuff. There is no mechanism. It's just done. I've tried everything I can. Let me just give you a few words of encouragement. Number one, walk away. Walk away. Walk away with clarity, with love, with kindness. Write a letter. Make sure it's documented. Be very clear. Uh, Not one moment sin. Get some help and accountability so you can make sure that whatever you say and do is done with integrity and kindness and optimism and trust them to Jesus Christ who holds them in his hand. It's one of the most gut-wrenching things to do when you love and build a church personally. When you love and build a church personally for a long time, it's one of the most gut-wrenching things to do. Guard your words. And I do believe it is okay and appropriate to warn other believers privately. But here's the deal. Before you warn somebody, you have this thing called the Holy Spirit. And you know that moment when you start talking out of turn and the Holy Spirit is like, shut up, stop it, don't do that. Those words aren't good. Those words aren't appropriate, right? Pay attention to that little voice inside of you because he loves you and he's trying to protect you and the unity of the church. And, and so you have to be very guarded. I would spend some time praying uh, before you really start warning people. But there is a time uh, where it is inappropriate to look at somebody you love, someone you trust as a brother or sister in Christ and warn them. Uh, Michael, what if the sin crosses into legal territory like child abuse or something of the sort? Um, So there are legal infractions against you. If uh, you steal money from me, I can choose to press charges or not. That's my personal prerogative. Um, And so like personally, you can do what you want on that. But um, once uh, once sin gets into the legal area, uh, there are we just, we have an obligation to report things. So if there's child abuse, we will never cover that up. We won't hide it. We will report it to the necessary authorities immediately because that's what we have to do. Um, The scriptures have a high view of law and government and we are to submit to that as well. And so when these things converge, the elders are given permission, I believe, and we believe by scripture to out some of you to 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 the authorities because of what you've done. Now, if it happens to you personally, you can make that decision. But if it is something that harms somebody else potentially, um, I do think you have an obligation. And that would be a time when we believe the scriptures give us authority to go outside of the church and go to a legal authority, but we will not go publicize it beyond that. Uh, Number five, isn't this the philosophy, Michael, that got the Catholic Church in so much trouble? No, because they didn't report illegal activity, right? 
We're committing to you to report illegal activity. So in case you got that mixed up in your brain. Number six, so in scripture, who has the authority to expose sin publicly? Number one, Jesus. Can we agree on that one? That's for sure. And number two, the elders within, within, within the church, within the church, within the family. That's their jurisdiction. But what about, Michael, the Old Testament prophets? Now, these are the questions I was thinking. Like, okay, all of these exceptions came to my mind, right? So um, if you're not thinking these thoughts, well, hey, here are my, here's my brain on paper. Uh, what about the Old Testament prophets? It's interesting. We, you know, they didn't have the internet. They're tribal communities. But what I loved is they exposed sin to God's people. They give these letters or these rebukes um, to the leadership of the nation. And uh, I thought it was very interesting, like, it kind of just stayed in family, in-house, in the nation, if you will. Uh, I don't find that the prophets, um, by and large, were going out to other nations just to shame, just to shame their people. There was a, a fighting for the leadership and their righteousness to get rid of hiding and covering up. Uh, number eight, but Paul exposed sin in the New Testament. Do you see that? Remember Demas, who's in love with this present world? I guarantee you this. Every person Paul outs in scripture, every one of them, went through a church discipline process. And now these letters, by the way, which are written from a pastor to a church, right? Um, I, I don't think Paul was expecting that we would be circulating these letters 2,000 years later, right? Uh, he's writing a very personal, intimate letter to a group of people. It is staying within the boundaries and confines within the church. Finally, number nine. I think for some of us, this actually might be the most important or encouraging. Do I have the authority to expose my own sin? Um, I, many of you, uh, you, you have been caught. And our pastors um, often are brought into these really difficult, sacred moments. For you, they're some of the most personal moments of your lives, right? And um, one, one of the things we tell people is sin loves to grow in the dark. And in the initial phases of being caught and discovered, um, part of covering means you just don't go up in front of the church and say, everybody, here's what they did, right? That's not what you do. There's a, a process of repentance. And let's just assume that what I'm talking about is someone who's repentant, okay? Somebody who's broken. Maybe they don't know how to get it right, but they're just broken over this. Um, what we tell people is not only does sin love to grow in the dark, but I wanna, I wanna tell you how you can know that you have officially murdered this sin, killed it. When you can stand in front of a group of people on a stage and tell people what you did, tell people what was done to you, or tell people what you felt that was sinful maybe, and you can declare it, it loses all power. One of the most powerful moments for anybody who has sinned big or sinned small who has royally messed up their life is to get in front of somebody, the right people at the right time and to say this, this is my sin, but my God is greater. That is one of the most sacred and beautiful moments and that is the death blow to sin. It's beautiful. You have authority to expose your own sin. And I think it's one of the most meaningful things and, and when you're in that moment when somebody stands on the stage and they tell you about when they committed adultery, when they tell you about their porn addiction, when they tell you about their life of, of crime, when they tell you about all the stuff that they've done, I want you to know that them getting up here is a deeply spiritual act. It's the final leg of like real repentance and killing this thing to say, it no longer defines me. I am not my struggle, my sin, or my decision. It's one of the most beautiful moments you can see. When you see someone doing that, you know that is hard fought over many, many, many years. 
So is it okay to keep secrets? I know a lot of secrets in this room. And many of you know a lot of secrets in this room too, don't you? And aren't you so glad that we are not getting up here and putting your name and your face and all your secrets on that screen, right? Aren't you so glad for covering? Aren't you so glad that you have not been defined by your one error and your one mistake? Aren't you so glad that that thing you did does not hang over your head? Aren't you so glad that everybody doesn't know, <laughs> right? Jesus is so good to us. And a village church, what we have the privilege to do is never to hide sin, never sweep sin under the rug. We don't expose repentant sin beyond the absolute most necessary small circles. We don't do that. We cover. We don't cover up, we cover. We protect the heart, the soul, the honor, the reputation, the dignity of the person who messed up. Because guess what? You did, you are, and you will. And you're going to want to know that this church covers you. One of the most beautiful things. And we're going to be like the brothers. And we're going to walk backwards. We're going to close our eyes. We're going to cover you. And you're going to feel loved because you are. And your future will be protected. And it will, be a, it will minister to you in a way because it's just a glimpse of what Jesus does for us every day. He knows all of our secrets. And he is unbelievably safe. Let's pray together. Father, what a loaded subject. I know I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of so many what ifs and questions. And um, God, I pray this was an encouragement. I pray that you would do something very different in Village Church. It's becoming more and more apparently common for, for, for people to be outed unnecessarily and ashamed and have their honor and dignity stripped away to be defined by a decision or a moment. God, may we be known for something different. But Lord, would you protect us from hiding, from covering up? Would you protect us from unnecessarily, prematurely exposing? Would you protect us from these sins? Would you protect me from future me? Maybe even current me. Would you protect our elders from future selves, from future men who may be coming into these roles? Would you protect us? In our best moments, we want what you want. We want to honor you. We want to bring you glory. We want to love your people and shepherd them well, but we know we're just capable in our worst moments of much less. So would you help us? Would you go before us? Lord, as we turn our, our eyes to the cross again, I'm so personally grateful for Jesus. Lord, you decisively dealt with our sin on the cross. And then you gave us the Holy Spirit who deals with it in our soul. And you give us the church and the word and this, oh, you're unbelievable. So generous, just relentlessly forming Christ in us, covering us. Thank you for the family we get to be a part of here. Lord, for all the what ifs and scenarios that maybe this sermon didn't answer, would you give us wisdom by your spirit and other counselors? Would you show us scriptures that maybe we didn't talk about that speak directly to that? Would you give us what we need to bring you glory, to live under the authority of your word, to trust you, Jesus, that you know what you're doing? I'll be honest, sometimes it doesn't feel like you do, but I know when I read your word and I look to the past, you've never failed and you will never fail. And nobody will be able to wag a finger at you and say you were too slow or too quick. Would you remind us that? Would you, would you grow our trust and our confidence in you as the chief shepherd of the church? 
Lord, we love you. We pray this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.